Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 108 of the show, and it is a fantastic episode for you. Just a spectacular weekend in sports that we just had. Of course, the NFL Conference Championships have concluded, so we'll recap those games and uh, talk about how we arrived at our Super Bowl matchup. Uh, do a standings update in the NBA and the NHL, which is now at the All-Star break. Take a look at how those uh, panned out in the first part of the season. On the PGA Tour, we had a come-from-behind victory this week, so we'll recap that, take a look at this weekend's tournament. And then, of course, the Around the Island segment has plenty of news and info to get to there. We will start off in the National Football League, and how can we not, right, with uh, this past weekend being conference championship weekend. We only had two games, both of which were on Sunday. Right, The first game was the NFC Championship. That featured the number two-seeded San Francisco 49ers against the number one top-seeded Philadelphia Eagles. This game was at Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia. And, you know, coming into this game, uh, the Eagles had just been absolutely dominant in their uh, divisional round game against the Giants. Uh, their offense really didn't break a sweat, took care of business on the ground with the running game, saw quite a bit more of that this week. And then on the other side, San Francisco, this was their third conference championship game appearance in the last four years. Uh, they came into this thing winning 12 in a row. And then, of course, the story was rookie quarterback Brock Purdy was the fifth rookie quarterback ever to reach the conference championship he had not lost as a starter coming into this game he was 7-0 and and this game it's, itself was just absolutely wild but it was for all the wrong reasons all right uh, Philadelphia got the ball to start the game they scored on the opening drive and a- this was after they converted a fourth and short on a long pass down the sideline to Devontae Smith amazing one-handed catch that in reality, when they showed the replay, it wasn't a catch because the ball hit the ground as Devontae Smith hit the ground. So uh, Philadelphia hurried, ran another play so the 49ers could not challenge, and then a uh, play or two after that is when they punched it in for the touchdown, take a 7 nothing lead. That was huge in the game at the time because on San Francisco's opening drive, Brock Purdy came out looking sharp, He completed each of his first two passes. Then on the sixth play of that drive, uh, Brock Purdy got hit by Philadelphia Eagles defensive end Hassan Reddick. Uh, Reddick's hand struck Brock Purdy's wrist area right before he threw, um, which caused the ball to fly out of Purdy's hands. And Purdy's hand was already going forward to throw like after the hit. So it caused his elbow, his right elbow, to kind of snap back. It was ruled a fumble, and it was. Uh, the ball was loose before his arm went forward, um, which that turned out to be the biggest play of the game because 
Brock Purdy's elbow was seriously hurt on that play, all right? It, it forced Brock Purdy out of the game, which meant that Josh Johnson, their fourth quarterback, fourth string quarterback uh, of the season, came in uh, in relief. And this Josh Johnson was playing on his 13th different NFL team. So he's damn near played on half the teams in the league, a career journeyman, and now he got thrusted into this NFC Conference Championship game with the 49ers down 7 nothing. all right? Uh, the game did turn into a little bit of a punt fest for a while before Christian McCaffrey got the 49ers on the board. Just an absolutely beautiful uh, touchdown run. It was 23 yards. He ended up hurtling one guy, uh, broke a couple other tackles. I mean, he should have been down for a loss, but instead it was a 23-yard touchdown. This was the ninth consecutive game that Brock, uh, that Christian McCaffrey had scored a touchdown, all right, which is, um, you know, obviously very impressive. Uh, pretty much as he did well in every game since they acquired him, all right, and he was really a big reason as to why the Niners were as successful as they were this year. Uh, but the Eagles answered right back. Miles Sanders punched in his second rushing touchdown of the game. And then the 49ers got the ball back with about a minute and a half left in the first half, all right, down 14 7. And first or second snap of that series, uh, Josh Johnson fumbled the snap, and that was recovered by Hassan Reddick. So Philadelphia was in the red zone, basically, with that fumble recovery. They used three plays to cash in another touchdown, giving the Eagles a 21-7 lead at the half. And then if it couldn't get any worse for San Francisco, Josh Johnson, on the opening drive of the second half, took a huge hit, got sacked or hit as he threw, and uh, his head bounced off the ground. So he left the game with a concussion. It was pretty obvious he was concussed. So they didn't have a quarterback. So Brock Purdy comes back in, and it was a handoff session from there on out. I mean, Brock Purdy only threw two passes the entire second half, all right? And they were both little check down screen type things where he wasn't basically just pitching the ball out. All right, two passes in the first half for Purdy and two passes in the second half after he was hurt. So uh, 49ers were extremely one-dimensional. Uh, the Eagles added 10 more points in the second half. Of course, shut out the Niners. They couldn't do anything. So the final score of this, this, uh, this game was Philadelphia 31, San Francisco 7. All right, there was a big dust-up at midfield, almost a brawl. Trent Williams and um, Kayvon Wallace got into it. Uh, benches cleared type situation. That was probably the most exciting part of the game, yeah, if we're being honest. And, um, you know, the Eagles, man, all four of their touchdowns were rushing touchdowns, all right? They uh, set the record for the most rushing touchdowns in an NFL season, including playoffs. One of those rushing touchdowns was by Jalen Hurts, which made it his 15th rushing touchdown of the year. Uh, which is now the most rushing touchdowns in a single season by a quarterback in NFL history. Broke a tie with uh, Cam Newton from 2011 in that uh, rushing touchdown. So, uh, you know, he, he was obviously a big factor. He he didn't have to play that well. Jalen Hurts was only 15 to 25 for 121 yards passing. All right. Everything they did was on the ground. Miles Sanders had two touchdowns. Of course, Jalen Hurts had one. I think Boston Scott had the other. So, uh, it was just a ground-and-pound game for Philly. Kept Jalen Hurts relatively fresh, all right? And um, the Eagles are moving on to the Super Bowl as the NFC Conference champions. Uh, but the other game on Sunday was the AFC Championship, and that featured the number three Cincinnati Bengals against the number one-seeded 
Kansas City Chiefs. This game was at GEHA Field at Arrowhead Stadium there in Kansas City. And, uh, man, this game was the battle of the heavyweights, all right? This has turned into one of the better rivalries in all of football over the last couple years um, with Patrick Mahomes and Joe Burrow. This was Kansas City's fifth straight appearance in the AFC Championship game, which made them the third team in NFL history to appear in five consecutive conference title games. All right, meanwhile, Cincinnati came into this thing uh, they had won uh, nine games in a row, all right? Uh, these two teams had met back in week 12 of the regular season in Cincinnati, and the Bengals had won that game 27-24, which was also the score of the AFC uh, title game last year between these two teams. This was a rematch of last year's AFC championship game, all right? And interestingly enough, uh, Patrick Mahomes was 0-3 against Joe Burrow entering uh, this game, all right? Now, the main story in this thing, of course, was the health of Patrick Mahomes and that right ankle. He sustained a high ankle sprain in their win last week, all right? And um, we didn't know how he'd look. I'm, you figured he was going to be, um, you know, doped up on some pain meds, and, and he did well in his treatment throughout the week, and it was never really in doubt that he was going to play, so... Uh, Mahomes was out there, all right, and, um, you know, both of these teams were absolutely loaded on offense, and like I said, it's turned into one of the better rivalries, the the Burrow versus Mahomes. It's being compared to, you know, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning of the mid-2000s, so, um, but this game, the game itself, man, when we finally got down to it, uh, it was just an absolute gong show. All right, the last couple meetings were the same thing, you know, real close, tight games. Uh, the Chiefs dominated the first quarter in this one, all right? They shut the Bengals out, and they actually held them to zero total yards, all right, with um, some negative plays in there mixed in with the positive plays. They got a net total of zero yards, Cincinnati. So uh, they also, the Chiefs got to Joe Burrow three times. They sacked him three times in that first quarter, and it just was ugly football for Cincinnati, uh, believe it or not, though, the game was still close. Uh, they traded scores in the second quarter, and uh, it was 13-6 to at halftime. Right? The Chiefs were up by a touchdown after a couple field goals by Cincinnati. And then, of course, Travis Kelsey touchdown there for the Chiefs in the first half. But early in the third quarter, Cincinnati tied the game. Uh, Joe Burrow just found a, a beautiful uh, Passing play, really, and uh, hit T. Higgins, 27-yard touchdown. Higgins went up and got it, went up over the defender. Yeah, just a great play. Uh, the Chiefs did answer that one a little bit later in the third quarter. Patrick Mahomes threw an absolute laser, 19-yard just bullet to uh, Marquez Valdez-Scantling. I mean, this if the pass was any sooner or any later, it wouldn't have been caught, all right, because there was a, a Cincinnati defensive back may have been Eli Apple um, that was converging in. Uh, but nonetheless, that was a touchdown to put the Chiefs back up. Uh, but one of the major critical points of this game happened late in the third quarter. All right, Kansas City was driving the field. They were up 20-13, to 13, okay, uh, up by a touchdown, looking to go up by two scores, right, if they could have, you know, um, cashed that in. Uh, but 
around midfield, Patrick Mahomes like got the snap and went to go throw a short dump off pass and fumbled the football. Uh, Bengals defensive end Sam Hubbard jumped on it, recovered it, and uh, the Bengals ran a few plays, which took us to the fourth quarter. And on the very first play of the fourth quarter was a Cincinnati fourth and six from the Kansas City 41-yard line, all right? And they were down by a touchdown. Well, the Bengals decided to go for it. And uh, Joe Burrow, they didn't try to run a short to intermediate route. They went long on this one. Uh, Joe Burrow threw a pass to Jamar Chase, uh, who was double covered, all right? There was double coverage, and uh, Jamar Chase went up and grabbed this thing, came down with it at the six-yard line. Just a fantastic play. And then two plays after that, the Bengals uh, punched it in Samaj P. Ryan uh, from two yards out. All right, that tied the game at 20. Huge swing there, right? I mean, the Chiefs, like I mentioned, they were driving. Uh, they could have been up two touchdowns or two scores and instead uh, end up with a tie game. Uh, but the end of this game is really what all everybody was talking about. The end of this game was just absolute banana land. Uh, the Bengals had the football with two and a half minutes left in the fourth quarter. All right, They went seven plays on that drive and only gained 22 yards uh, before Chris Jones sacked Joe Burrow uh, to force a fourth down and a punt from damn near their end zone. And uh punt was beautiful, 54-yard punt. Uh, but rookie Chiefs wide receiver Sky Moore uh, fielded the punt. And he was ready for big time, man, because he took this punt 29 yards. All right, huge punt return and the most critical time of the game. Gave the Chiefs fantastic field position at their own 47-yard line with 30 seconds left. All right, I believe they had two timeouts at this moment, which is obviously more than enough time for Patrick Mahomes, all right? But here's where it gets interesting. The Chiefs ran two plays from their own 47, uh, ended up with a third and four from the Bengals' 47. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, his gimpy ankle and all, ran for five yards, got the first down, and as he was about a step or two out of bounds, he was shoved down to the ground by Cincinnati Bengals uh, linebacker Joseph Osai, all right, which... Uh, obviously drew a personal foul penalty, gave the Chiefs 15 more yards, uh, added to the end of that run, all right? At this time, the clock showed eight seconds. It was first and 10, uh, so Kansas City ended up lining up for a field goal on first down. They did not have any timeouts left at this point. It was a 45-yard field goal, and Harrison Butker drilled it to put the Chiefs up by three. And uh, there was three seconds left. Of course, the kickoff, it was, you know, a little pitchy, pitchy, woo-woo there at the end, and it didn't work out. So uh, Kansas City was your winner by a score of 23-20, to 20. all right? Now, all of that drama at the end, I mean, uh, you know, Joseph Osai, former Texas Longhorn, I just feel terrible for him. You could see him bawling his eyes out on the bench. He knew he made a mistake. Uh, and realistically, um, had he not given them 15 extra yards, I'm not sure that Butker would have made that field goal, all right? That would have been a 60-yard field goal, all right, which, you know, they had eight seconds. They may have ran a play to try and get a few yards um, and then kick a field goal, but it would have been a plus 50-yard field goal. And um, looking at the replay from behind the field goal posts, I'm not sure that that kick would have made it 
uh, anything really beyond about 50 yards. Uh, it looked pretty short. It, it just barely cleared that uh, from 45. So it's possible that Butker would have missed that field goal uh, had they not been given that 15 extra yards. So uh, just a horrible scene there for the Bengals. Uh, heartbreaking loss. And um, again, though, another close game between these teams. All right. Uh, on the Chiefs side of things, Travis Kelsey, uh, he passed Rob Gronkowski for the most receiving yards by a tight end in NFL playoff history. Um, he's he's just as, as good as they come. I mean, first ballot Hall of Famer when he's done. And then Patrick Mahomes, this was his 10th career playoff win. He's only 27 years old, so that made him the youngest quarterback in NFL history to reach 10 playoff wins. Tom Brady is next at 28 years old, so uh, Mahomes beat Brady in that regard. But um, And then, of course, I mentioned this is Patrick Mahomes' first victory against Joe Burrow. He entered the game 0-3 comes out uh, in this one and wins on that, you know, last second drive, field goal, whatever you want to call it. And um, ironically enough, all four of the games between Patrick Mahomes and Joe Burrow, all four matchups uh, between regular season and uh, playoffs last year and this year, have they've all of those games have been decided by a field goal. Uh, coming into tonight, or the, you know, the, the AFC Championship game this week, uh, the previous two matchups were 27 to 20. The regular season game in week 12 this year and the AFC Conference Championship game last year were both 27 24. Identical scores. And then we have a 23 to 20 game uh, here in the AFC Conference Championship game this year. So uh, just a fantastic weekend of NFL football. Uh, and that sets up the Super Bowl 57 matchup. Uh, which is the NFC champion Philadelphia Eagles against the AFC champion Kansas City Chiefs. That game is not until Sunday, February 12th. So uh, as you listen to this, it's about a week and a half uh, until the Super Bowl. So we will not do a preview of that on this week's episode. We will wait until next week's episode when we're a tad bit closer to the Super Bowl, and I'll have a very extended preview on that, breaking it down from all angles. Uh, and I will give you a prediction of who I think is going to win. So uh, look forward to that on next week's episode. But we do have some football this weekend. Uh, the Pro Bowl is the NFL's version of the All-Star Game. That is this weekend. Now, we've talked a whole bunch about how they've changed the format uh, from an actual Pro Bowl football game, which was becoming a two-hand touch and kind of a joke, they moved it now to a skills competition, all right? So how it's going to work, uh, the Pro Bowl games are what they're called, and it's from Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, uh, home of the Las Vegas Raiders, all right? So it's a Thursday and Sunday event, all right? So Thursday, we have the skills showdown, which is on ESPN at 7 o'clock Eastern time. And what that's going to feature is some skills competitions. There will be some epic Pro Bowl dodgeball, all right, AFC versus NFC, a little dodgeball style. <clears throat> the other events that we'll have, uh, something called the lightning round, which is new this year. Each conference is going to select 16 players to compete in a three-part elimination challenge that's going to have one player left at the end to earn points for their conference, all right? The first event in the lightning round, Splash Catch, Teammate P. 
pairings from each conference are going to toss water balloons back and forth from increasing distances, right? And then each tandem that completes all of their tosses advance on to the second phase. In part two, it's lightning round high stakes. So the advancing players are going to attempt to catch punts from a jugs machine to earn a place in the final, all right? And then the final part of lightning round, it's called thrill of the spill. And so the remaining players will aim at targets attached to a bucket hanging above the head of an opposing conference coach. The first team to dump the bucket on the opposing coach wins and earns points for the conference. So that seems pretty fun. <clears throat> Some other events on Thursday night. The longest drive, all right, has nothing to do with football, but I absolutely love it. You got four players from each conference going to compete in a challenge to drive a golf ball the furthest distance off of a tee, all right? Each player is going to get three swings, and the player that drives the furthest within the boundaries on each side of the fairway is going to win the point. So that's fun. Then you have precision passing, all right? We've seen this before. Each conference has three quarterbacks. They're going to battle it out. You get one minute. <clears throat> they try to hit as many targets as possible. The target's uh, are moving or stationary, and um, they have point values assigned to them. And then best catch, all right? First round uh, is on Thursday. There'll be a second round finale that's on Sunday. But the first round of best catch, two players from each conference are going to compete in the best catch competition, all right, showing off creativity, talent. <clears throat> and, um, you know, fans vote online to determine their favorite catch, all right? So that's the first round. That's all on Thursday night. And then on Sunday, we get uh, started with some more Pro Bowl stuff, uh, 3 o'clock Eastern on ESPN. And uh, what we'll see on Sunday, uh, we'll have the finale of the best catch, all right? So the top vote-getters from each conference go head-to-head as they perform in front of a panel of celebrity judges, all right, the highest score is going to win. Gridiron Gauntlet, which is a side-by-side relay race showcasing strength, speed, agility. All right, six players from each conference are going to compete in that. And the person who finishes first uh, wins a point. Um, the four parts of the gauntlet, each segment is 40 yards in length, includes a series of breakaway walls, a section of climbing over walls, under tables, uh, a tire run, and a blocking sled Right, so there's plenty of stuff in that one. That's kind of all-inclusive. Then you have kick, tack, toe. Each team's kicker, punter, and long snapper are going to compete in a giant tic-tac-toe competition to showcase their respective skills. All right, the first team to compete uh, complete a connecting line of three squares, right, or hit f- uh, five squares in total is going to be declared the winner. You have the Move the Chains game, which is four teams, two from each conference. They're going to compete side-by-side in a weighted wall pull, right? Each team has five players that's going to be responsible for pulling the wall. It's going to be loaded up with heavy weights. Uh, they got to do it 10 yards as quickly as possible using the first down chains, and the winner, the best of three, will earn a point, all right? So the cumulative scoring, it's... Uh, the winning conference of each skill competition earns three points towards their team's overall score. 24 points total available across all eight events. All right, and then the other thing we're going to see on Sunday is um, 
a flag football game, all right? That's basically what the Pro Bowl was turning into, <laughs> but uh, it is an official uh, flag football game, all right? And that'll be on Sunday afternoon as well. So the winning conference from each of the two flag football games on Sunday, they're going to break it down. Obviously, there's more guys than, than needed for one football game, but the uh, <clears throat> winners from each of the two flag football games earn six points apiece for a total of 12 points. All right, 12 points max, right? So uh, it's going to be fun. You know, I like this. There's a lot going on with this, but I do really think that this is, you know, if you've watched the previous skills competitions the last few years, they've been kind of short and left you kind of wanting more, uh, only about an hour's worth of TV, but they're fun. You know, the players interact with each other. It's just an environment you don't really get to see them in. And so um, I, I think it's great. You know, I, I do like the actual Pro Bowl game, but it was turning into, like I said, a two-hand touch session and, you know, just really wasn't that entertaining, all right? That's kind of how all all the All-Star games are going. But the NFL is proactively trying to uh, figure out how to make it more interesting. I think, you know, these athletes are incredibly skilled and get them in events like this that showcases those skills, and I think... Uh, it's it's going to be some must-watch TV, so I'll definitely be tuned into that. But again, we got the Pro Bowl this weekend from Vegas, and then uh, we'll uh, preview the Super Bowl on next week's episode. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League and do a standings update here in the NHL. We have officially reached the NHL's All-Star break. Most teams have played between 49 to 51 or 52 games. So the All-Star break's just past the halfway point of the season, right? We have um, under half of the season left to play. And um, the wild card standings that we do give you the top three teams in each division, the two wild card teams, and then the teams that are in contention uh, or will be in contention. We will not go over the teams that um, are all but eliminated from the playoffs, barring a miracle. And we'll start off in the Eastern Conference, the Metropolitan Division. Carolina Hurricanes are up top with 74 points. All right, They uh, have a six-game winning streak, and they've won eight out of their last ten. Okay, Now, as I record this, they do. there's only two games left in the NHL's schedule before the official All-Star break. Carolina plays Buffalo. And Toronto plays Boston. Now, the Boston-Toronto game has no bearing on the standings. Uh, Carolina goes in uh, to the All-Star break as the top team, uh, but more on Buffalo in a second. So Carolina will enter the All-Star break top team in the Metropolitan Division. Uh, They have 74 points. Uh, The most they'll have going in after uh, the final game is 76 But the New Jersey Devils, they're at 68 points heading into the break. Uh, They've also won eight out of their last ten, but they're still uh, a few games behind Carolina in terms of points. Uh, The New York Rangers are third in the Metro with 62 points. And then over in the Atlantic Division, the Boston Bruins are up top with 81 points. They could possibly make it 83 uh, but they're 38-7-5, okay? They hit a little skid, all right? They have lost three times or four times technically in their last 10 games. One was in overtime. Uh, they did lose three games in a row, which uh, was the most they've lost all season. Hell, they've only lost 12 games all year. So, 
just a very impressive season for Boston. They are, as it sits now, 11 points clear of Toronto, who is second in the Atlantic with 70 points. But again, those two teams play each other in the final game before the actual break. So uh, that it's not going to change the standings. It would only change the points. But third in the Atlantic division, the Tampa Bay Lightning, they enter the All-Star break with 65 points on a three-game winning streak, having won eight out of their last 10. So they're uh, in very good shape there. Uh, they're really going to need to turn it on, though, in the second half if they want to catch Boston. I just don't think that's possible at this point, but um, you never know. Then the wild card teams at the moment, the first wild card team is the Washington Capitals with 60 points. Second wild card team is the Pittsburgh Penguins with 57 points. Now, I mentioned uh, Buffalo. Uh, they do play Carolina in the final uh, night before the All-Star break. Uh, so that is possible that uh, if Buffalo gets a point against Carolina or wins the game, they would then take over the number two wild card spot heading into the all-star break. But nonetheless, Pittsburgh and Buffalo are right there. Pittsburgh's technically in at this moment as I record this, but uh, by the time you listen to this, the all-star break hits Buffalo uh, might possibly be ahead of Pittsburgh in that wild card spot. But nonetheless, those two teams, Pittsburgh's at 57 points, Buffalo's at 56. The New York Islanders are at 55 points. All right, uh, Islanders goaltender Ilya Sorokin, he has been off the charts so far this in his NHL career. All right, he started 112 games so far in his career. And he's got 14 shutouts in those 112 games. That means his shutout percentage. He has a shutout in 12.8% of his games, which is the highest percentage of starts with a shutout since 1943. And that is a minimum of 100 starts. All right, so the dude, he's been a shutout machine. You will see him this weekend in the All-Star game. And uh, he, if, if the Islanders get into the playoffs this year, he's certainly a, a main reason as to why. And they, you know, they're only two points back of Pittsburgh as it sits now, so they're very much in the mix. Florida Panthers, uh, the host of the All-Star game this weekend, they are at 54 points. The Ottawa Senators climbed up the, the standings this week. They've won four games in a row. They're up to 51 points. So too, the Philadelphia Flyers sit at 51 points. And then the Detroit Red Wings... At 50 points, they're probably the, the last team that I would say has a legitimate chance to uh, contend for a wild card spot. They're, they're um, still, you know, they're seven points back as it sits now. So they're going to have to really do some winning in the second half. I just, I don't know that uh, I trust that young roster quite yet. They looked good for the first, you know, 25, 30 games, but it's kind of fallen off a bit since. Over in the Western Conference, these standings are finalized heading into the break. We do not have any Western Conference teams playing in either of those last two games um, before the break. So this is how the Western Conference enters the All-Star break. In the Central Division, my Dallas Stars are atop the entire Western Conference with 66 points. Okay. They have had a weird last 10 games, all right? They're 4-2-4, they're and four, all right? Those four overtime losses this last week and a half, three of which in a row, all at home and all 3-2 to two 
losses in overtime. Uh, the Stars have a massive overtime problem. If the game goes past six, any game in, that has gone past 60 minutes this year for the Stars, their record is 3-10 and 10 in overtime or shootout games, which is absolutely horrendous, all right? And that has to change. For a team as good as they are leading the entire Western Conference, uh, that has to change, all right? It's just very odd that their overtime record is as bad as it is. That's the equivalent of the Golden State Warriors' road record in the NBA. I've talked about that a whole bunch. That's kind of where the stars are. They're a very good team, but uh, if you get past 60 minutes, you know, you're, you're going to probably win, all right? The stars have 10 overtime losses this year, which is actually second most in the NHL behind San Jose, uh, but San Jose, you know, they, they've they lost a lot more games as well. They're they're towards the bottom of the conference. So um, it's the most out of any team in playoff position currently. We'll say that. So the, the Stars need to correct that over the break and uh, get back on the right track there when it gets into overtime. Second in the Central is the Winnipeg Jets. They're at 65 points, just one point back at Dallas. Uh, Dallas enters the break with one game in hand. So that uh, that division battle is going to come down uh, probably to the last couple of games, if I had to guess, just based on how it's been so far. Winnipeg is vastly outperforming their project uh, projections for this year, um, and they just keep continuing to win. Uh, Minnesota Wild are third in the Central, 58 points. Over in the Pacific Division, the Seattle Kraken are up top with 63 points. Los Angeles Kings, 63 points. And the Vegas Golden Knights at 62 points. All right. In the wild card currently, uh, first team in the wild card, the Edmonton Oilers, they're at 60 points. All right, they've won seven out of their last ten. So, too, have the Colorado Avalanche. They're currently sitting in that second wild card spot. They have also uh, won seven out of their last ten, and they have 57 points. So they are uh, three points back of Edmonton for the first wild card, but more importantly, they're only one point back of Minnesota for third in the Central. So Colorado's done a little bit of winning lately. I uh, was shocked uh, last week to see them, you know, out of the last several episodes, really, to see them out of the playoffs. Uh, Calgary Flames, they also have 57 points. They're the first team out of a wild card spot at the moment. Nashville Predators have 54 points. They have won three games in a row, so they go into the break on a little win streak. And then the St. Louis Blues, my goodness, they have 49 points, and they enter the break on a four, uh, excuse me, five-game losing streak. Uh, that is not what you want. The Vancouver Canucks have 43 points. Uh, you know, we talked or we will talk about a trade that uh, that they made this week that's probably going to keep them down at the bottom uh, in addition to the coaching change we talked about last week. And then last team that you could even really throw in the mix, which I don't think it's possible, but I'm going to mention them. It's the San Jose Sharks. They have 41 points. The only reason I'm mentioning the Sharks is because in a game this past week, they played the Carolina Hurricanes. I think it may have been on Friday or Saturday night uh, over this past weekend, um, they lost after scoring an empty net goal. And you usually score empty net goals when you're winning very late in the game. So the Sharks were up 3-2, to two, scored an empty net goal with a little bit less than two minutes left to take a 2 nothing lead, right? 
Soon as they scored that empty netter, 15 seconds later, the Hurricanes scored to pull within one goal, made it 4-3. to three. Then with 12 seconds left in the game, the Hurricanes scored to tie it at four, Okay, which that's already bad enough. And then less than a minute into overtime, it's only fitting that the Carolina Hurricanes won the game. So uh, the San Jose Sharks are the only team in NHL history to lose a game after they score an empty netter, all right? And they've actually done it twice uh, in the last three years. So that is the wrong side of history there for the Sharks. But uh, that's how the standings look in both conferences. Like I said, there's two games left as I record this, but neither of them will affect the standings other than uh, Buffalo may pass Pittsburgh for the second wild card spot. But that's, again, just a minor change since it's uh, down in the wild card portion of the the playoff standings. Uh, But more importantly than the standings here in the NHL as we enter the All-Star break is the All-Star game itself, all right? The All-Star game is this weekend. Uh, It starts off on Friday night. The uh, NHL All-Star Skills Competition, right? That is going to be Friday night. I believe it's 7 o'clock Eastern on ESPN. Skills Competition will be held uh, and the All-Star Game. It's at FLA Live Arena, which is in Sunrise, Florida, uh, in the Miami area, home of the Florida Panthers, as I mentioned a little bit ago. Uh, the skills competition, we'll just go through it like we did for the Pro Bowl. All right, uh, it features three new events this year. All right, so the skills competition is Friday night. Uh, two of the new events, which is the uh, Enterprise NHL Splash Shot and the Chipotle NHL Pitch and Puck are going to feature players going in outdoor environments that uh, typify Florida. Okay, very unique setting for this All-Star game, so why not take advantage? Okay, the, we'll start off with the new events. The NA, uh, Enterprise NHL Splash Shot will be on the beach at Fort Lauderdale. It's going to feature eight players divided into four teams of two, all right? Players are going to be required to hit all the targets uh, before attempting to dunk their opponents, and the winner is the one to dunk his or her opponent first. So a little beach action there. Uh, The Chipotle NHL pitch and puck, you're going to have players combine hockey and golf skills. A lot of hockey players play golf, so why not? Just like the Pro Bowl, we're going to throw some golf in there. It's on a par four golf hole, all right, features an island green. Six players are going to compete in that. The winner is the one who successfully sinks the puck or the ball in the hole with the fewest shots using a combination of hockey and golf shots, okay? If there's a tie, the longest drive determines the winner. So that's very interesting, a little unique spin on that. In the Discover NHL Tendy Tandem, that is uh, the third new event, eight goalies are going to work in tandems, one shooting and the other in net. You're going to have the Central versus the Pacific and then the Atlantic versus the Metro divisions in that one. The shooting goalie from a division will take a shot from a designated mark and will be awarded three points if the shot goes in the hole, two if it hits the net, Uh, in-net target and zero if it misses the net, right? Then the in-net goalie is going to face one, two, or three players depending on the points earned from the shooting goalie, okay? So players, they'll start from center ice. They must shoot on the rush. You got NHL shootout rules that apply there. 
So no rebounds or anything like that. The play is going to continue until all the pucks have been shot and repeated for the second goalie pairing. All right, goalie with the most points wins. The upper deck NHL fastest skater, that's been around for a while. Geico NHL hardest shot, that's been around for a while. Those are both self-explanatory. And then the breakaway challenge, Great Clips NHL breakaway challenge, which we saw the last couple years. It's kind of a, you know, it's it's the breakaway challenge. Every team or every guy that participates gets a, a breakaway. They usually dress up, do costumes and crazy stuff. All right, that's been around. And then the Honda NHL accuracy shooting, those round out the competition events, okay? Um, those The fastest skater, hardest shot, breakaway challenge, and accuracy shooting we've all we've seen for the last several years several of those those have been mainstays for pretty much all the all-star games um interesting note the winner of each event is going to earn $30,000 okay so that's pretty cool and then uh so that's Friday night 7 o'clock eastern on ESPN then Saturday is the actual NHL all-star game and I mentioned this several times but if you're unfamiliar with the NHL's All-Star Game, it's personally my favorite just in the format that they do. So we have Eastern and Western Conference. There's two divisions in each conference. Each division has eight teams, okay? So we went over the All-Star rosters. Every NHL team will be represented in the All-Star Game. And the way that they do it is they each division has their own All-Star team, okay? They all have, you know, I think it's uh, nine nine skaters and two goalies um, on their roster, each division, and every team is represented. And the way they do it um, is the first period, uh, the matchups are randomly drawn, I think, or, you know, whatever. So you, it's basically three games in one. So an NHL game, of course, is three periods, right, 20 minutes. Um, so period one will be, you know, Matchup one, which we'll we'll just pretend it's Central versus Pacific. Second period would be Metro versus Atlantic, and then the third period is the championship period, which face uh, the winners of period one versus the winner of period two face off in period three uh, to get your champion and whoever wins period three. So it's basically three twenty-minute games, basically instead of one all-star game like we see in basketball where the scores get outrageous and they quit trying. So, uh, And there is monetary incentive for the players to play in the All-Star game. All right, I, I believe the, uh, the winning team uh, splits a million bucks, um, I believe. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to be – it's always NHL All-Star weekend is always exciting. The, the new skills competitions but the outdoor stuff, uh, the pitch and puck, that looks really cool. And then, of course, who doesn't want to see hockey players, uh, you know, take their talents to the beach, you know? I mean, it's it's just really cool uh, what they're doing. And, um, you know, I'm excited. I'll definitely be watching that. That's, that's Friday night and Saturday, so uh, that does not interfere with the Pro Bowl because the Pro Bowl is Thursday and Sunday. So uh, that is going to be quite a weekend with all-star events, hence the uh, – the title of this episode, right? It's it's you know it's an all star extravaganza weekend, and uh, it's just going to be something definitely to tune into. Even if you're not a hockey fan per se, I would encourage you to watch it because uh, the, you'll appreciate the talent in the game maybe a little more 
than if you just watch a normal game. So I know I'll be tuned in and we'll just check in next week, do a little recap of the All-Star game and see how all that stuff went down. But we'll move over to the NBA, do a standings update here. Uh, Most teams have played around 50 to 51 games, so right on par with the NHL. But again, uh, we'll talk about this in Around the Island coming up here shortly. Uh, A lot of stuff got announced this week regarding the NBA's All-Star Game, which is coming up on February 19th. So we're still a couple weeks away from their All-Star break. But we'll just roll through the standings updates as they are. Uh, In the Eastern Conference, the Boston Celtics are up top there at 36 and 15. Uh, They've won seven out of their last 10. Milwaukee Bucks are up to second again. They're 34 and 17. They've won five games in a row, so um, they had dropped down a little bit, but now they're back up to second. Um, Giannis had a 50 point game the other night, uh, back to back either 40 or 50 point game, just something absurd. I mean, Giannis doing what Giannis does. Philadelphia 76ers are third, 32 and 17. They've won eight out of their last 10. Uh, Joel Embiid has now entered the chat for uh, NBA MVP with his performances lately. The Brooklyn Nets are fourth at 31 and 19. Uh, They've only won four times in their last 10 games. Cleveland Cavaliers are fifth at 31 and 22. And Miami Heat are sixth at 29 and 23. They've won seven out of their last 10. The New York Knicks are seventh in the East at 27 and 25. Atlanta Hawks are eighth at 25 and 26. And uh, one of the hottest teams in the NBA right now, in fact, it is the hottest team. The Washington Wizards are up to ninth in the Eastern Conference at 24 and 26. They've won six games in a row, all right? So they have now climbed back up uh, and um, looking decent at the moment, but there's some teams that, you know, could could certainly chase them down. Indiana Pacers are 10th at 24 and 28. Um, they're, they're in a bad way right now. Uh, they've, they've lost three in a row and nine out of their last 10 games. So uh, they're going the wrong way, Uh, not the time you want to do that. The All-Star break can't get here quick enough for them. Chicago Bulls are 11th at 23 and 27. Toronto Raptors 12th at 23 and 29. Orlando Magic are 13th, all right? They're 20 and 31. Um, They're only four games out of a playoff spot, but they've surprised a lot of people this year. Their youth movement in Orlando is probably making waves a lot faster than they anticipated. Uh, big reason is Paulo Bancaro, number one overall pick from this this past draft. Uh, he's just been a monster this year. Certainly uh, is is looking great for for rookie of the year. But the Magic, interesting note about them, uh, they have eight wins this year. Eight out of their twenty wins have come when they have entered the game as eight-point underdogs or more, all right? So uh, they've surprised a lot of people. You know, I certainly don't think they're going to make the playoffs, but mathematically they still have a legitimate chance. Uh, You know, it seems to me just about three or four episodes ago we were talking about them in contention for the, the top overall pick in the draft, and here they are at 20 and 31. Charlotte Hornets are 14th in the East at 15 and 37, and then the uh, the Detroit Pistons are 15th last in the Eastern Conference, 13 and 39. 
Western Conference, the Denver Nuggets are up top at 34-16. and 16. Uh, They've won seven out of their last ten. They obviously have Nikola Jokic, who uh, steps off the bus and just has a triple-double immediately upon entering the arena. Memphis Grizzlies are second at 32-18. and 18. Right, they're twenty-one and three at home. You can forget about it. If you're playing at the FedEx Forum, uh, that game is not going to go your way. That's that is for sure. Sacramento Kings are up to third. All right, they're staying right there. I think they were third last week too. They're twenty-eight and twenty-one. They've won seven out of their last ten, and um, they've looked the part so far. Really, I mean, it's you know, it's Sacramento. I mean, they haven't made the playoffs since uh, you know the NBA is you know, inaugural season, it seems like, but uh, here they sit currently um, in third place. Fourth is the LA Clippers at 29 and 25. They've also won seven out of their last 10. Golden State Warriors. Uh, we have a Golden State Warriors sighting and in their fifth place at 26 and 24. They've done a little more winning on the road over this last period of time. All right. Um, they're nineteen and six at home, seven and eighteen on the road, which uh, you know does is not good, but it's certainly a lot better than it was. Uh, they've won three games in a row, so they're they're up to fifth place, uh, which you know I, I they, they don't need to be anywhere but in the top four with that roster. So my Dallas Mavericks are sixth in the Western Conference, uh, twenty seven and twenty five. They've only won four times in their last ten. Again, just very streaky. Uh, they have a bit of a road problem too at nine and sixteen on the road, but you know Luka Doncic just had his fifth career fifty point game the other night, which uh, is the most in Mavericks franchise history. And um, man, that dude, he is just so good. I, I don't see how he doesn't win the league MVP this year. But the, I, I've I've been saying this for the last probably four five episodes. The Mavericks have to do something at the trade deadline. They have to acquire another legitimate player. Give up draft picks for years, uh, you know, role players on this team. They need to get Luka Doncic some help. Otherwise, they might not make the playoffs. Um, but also at 27 and 25, the Phoenix Suns, they're seventh place in the uh, West. And then, man, what a fall from grace for the New Orleans Pelicans. They're all the way down to eighth in the West, and that is because... Um, they have an eight-game losing streak, all right? They do have an all-star starter in Zion Williamson, but um, they've lost eight games in a row. Um, that's, that is just not what you want to be doing. Minnesota Timberwolves are ninth at 27 and 26. Utah Jazz are 10th at 26 and 26. And then 11th place, probably one of the more surprising teams this year, the Oklahoma City Thunder, uh, they're 24 and 26, all right? So they're right there on the cusp of, of being in that play-in cutoff. Um, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, uh, I don't have it pulled up in front of me what his point-per-game average is, but I bet it's in the high 20s. It's got to be at least 27 points a game, 26 points a game, all right? That dude, every time I look at a box score, he's scoring 30-something points or more, and, um, you know, Josh Giddy as well. He's really good. And then, of course, they have about 100 first-round picks over the next, like, six years, eight years. So 
Uh, Oklahoma City is is really going to be in good shape here in a couple years, but they they're really surprising right now this year. They're ahead of some teams you wouldn't think that they would be ahead of, uh, particularly Portland at twelve. They they have the same record, twenty four and twenty six, and the Los Angeles Lakers, who are thirteenth in the West at twenty four and twenty eight. Now, LeBron James, he this past week. He recorded a 40-point game against the Los Angeles Clippers, which made him the first player in NBA history to have a 40-point game against all 30 teams in the NBA, all right? It's, you know, LeBron is one of one, all right? He is on the Mount Rushmore of, of NBA basketball. You can, you know, debate Jordan or LeBron, and it, that's, a, that's a legitimate conversation, but... Um, you know, he now has recorded a 40-point performance against every single team in the league. 14th in the West, San Antonio Spurs at 14 and 37. Okay, they've, you know, lost six games in a row. And then the Houston Rockets are in last in the Western Conference and the entire league with a record of 12 and 38. So again, we're 50 or 51 games or so into the NBA season. Got about 30 to 32 games left for most of these teams, right on pace with what the NHL's doing and uh, all-star game uh, in a couple of weeks. But again, in the Around the Island segment here coming up shortly, we will have plenty of news regarding the NBA's all-star game and some new changes that uh, look to benefit the all-star game. But we'll move over to the PGA Tour and uh, recap this past weekend's tournament, which was the Farmers Insurance Open. That was at the Torrey Pines Golf Course, and that is in La Jolla, California, which is just outside San Diego. It's a par 72 distance, 7,765 yards for the south course. Uh, the north course was also a par 72 that distance was 7,258 yards, all right? So just a tad bit, about 500 yards shorter for the north course. And um, for this tournament, both of those courses were utilized, right? Players alternated between the north and south courses for the first two rounds before the cuts were made, typical 36-hole cut. And then the final two rounds were both played on the south course. Of course, Torrey Pines... Uh, as known for being very long, very challenging, uh, very windy. Uh, weather certainly a factor there on the coastline of California, which we did see a little bit this weekend. All right, so weather was an issue. It got really pretty cold and um, cloudy, overcast on Sunday. Sunday was, ironically enough, the final round was probably the worst day weather-wise, at least for the first uh, couple hours of the round. It was chilly and uh, windy and just overcast, not not typical uh, golf weather as you would uh, perceive it. But this tournament was interesting because it was a Wednesday through Saturday event, all right? They did the same thing with this tournament last year. Started on Wednesday, ended on Saturday. Typically, uh, PGA Tour events are Thursday through Sunday, but the PGA made this uh, Wednesday through Saturday, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, because it didn't interfere with uh, NFL football this weekend. So the final round was on uh, Saturday, and it was the only uh, PGA Tour event on calendar to have a Saturday finish. So the field for this thing was was really good. Five out of the top ten players in the official world golf rankings were out there, including Xander Shoffley, Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa, 
Will Zalatoris, and the hottest golfer in the world, John Rahm, all right, who has historically played really well at this course. All right, he won this event back in uh, 2017, I think, won the U.S. Open here at Torrey Pines a couple years ago. And um, we also saw some other notable names, Tony Finau, Max Homa, Hideki Matsuyama, Justin Rose, and Jason Day, all right? We did see a playoff in this event last year, so we expected certainly a uh, another good round of golf. And um, we did get that, actually. Uh, we saw a really good tournament, right? When it was all said and done, Max Homa was your winner at 13 under par, and he came from behind to do it, all right? Uh, Homa was not really, you know, he played okay golf. I mean, he went four under in round one, then shot two under in round two, one under in round three. You know, I mean, that's that's solid. And for Torrey Pines, that's that was good. It got him up there near the top. Uh, but then on, on Saturday's final round, he shot a six under 66 uh, with a bogey on the card. Could have had a seven under. Uh, just a terrific round of golf. He actually... When he started his round on uh, Saturday, he trailed by five shots entering the final round, all right, but just came out blistering. Uh, this was his sixth career PGA Tour victory. Now, Max Homa is from California, all right, and four out of his six victories have come in the state of California, so he likes him some home cooking. Uh, it was actually uh, Homa's fifth victory uh, in his last 45 starts after winning only once in his first 88 starts. So he's Max Homa over the last year, year and a half, has played really, really good golf. He's certainly climbed up the world golf rankings, and um, five out of the six victories for him uh, have been when he has entered the final round trailing. All right, so he is used to playing come-from-behind golf, and he did so once again. Five-shot difference uh, this this uh, year, all right, at, at Torrey Pines, uh, entered the final round trailing by five, which is very impressive to come back from, considering your final group featured John Rahm, right? We'll get to him in a minute. Solo second was Keegan Bradley at 11 under par, all right? He finished a little bit before Homa. Um, did not really get off to a good start. He finished uh, two under on Wednesday, shot one over on Thursday, and then four under Saturday and six under 66 on, on, on Saturday, right? So he he played really well on Saturday's final round. Colin Morikawa, right, he was at 10 under, which was solo third. Uh, you know, again, solid effort. Um, he played really well on, on Saturday's final round. You know, had a few, few two, he had uh, four bogeys on, on, um, Saturday, if he could have taken a couple of those out, uh, a couple of them were, you know, were not great. He, he bogeyed back-to-back holes on on nine and ten there at the turn on Saturday, um, but he was right up there in contention on Sunday. He just ran out of holes. Three-way tie for fourth at nine under. Sahith Thigala, Sung J M, and Sam Ryder. Now Sam Ryder actually entered the. Uh, Saturday's final round as the 54-hole leader, all right, and proceeded to shoot a three-over 75 on Saturday. Um, Two-way tie for seventh at 
uh, eight under par, Jason Day and John Rahm. Now, interesting thing about John Rahm, he was um, entered the final round on Saturday in that final group, and Rahm did not play well in his opening round. All right, he shot a uh, one over seventy three, which put him at T one hundred and sixteenth after round one. Played just exceptional in his second round. All right, shot a um, five under 67 in round two to catapult all the way up to T14 after round two, which was a jump of 102 spots between the first two rounds. Just crazy. And then after the third round, he shot a six under 66 in round three, right, to jump up to solo second after the third round. And you're thinking, okay, he's only trailed uh, Sam Ryder by two shots entering the final round, and you just knew that that John Rahm was going to probably win this thing too. Uh, but then he proceeded to go out and play absolutely horrible on Sunday, shooting two over seventy four, which took him out of the tournament. So, uh, just a you know another good exciting tournament. Uh, Homa's becoming a really really talented golfer that is making quite the name for himself with each week that passes. And, um, yeah, I mean, he's, it was just, you know, come from behind victories are always fun, especially when they're five shots back. But that brings us to this weekend's tournament, which is the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. It's in Pebble Beach, California, not too far from where uh, Torrey Pines is located from this past weekend's tournament. And this is the second of the two Pro-Am tournaments that are on the PGA Tour's regular season schedule. The other was the American Express that we covered just a couple of weeks ago. And it's the exact same format that we saw for that. All right, we're going to use three courses for this tournament this weekend. The first being the Pebble Beach Golf Links. That's a par 72, distance 6,972 yards. The second course is Spyglass Hill. That's a par 72, distance is 7,041 yards, just a, a little bit longer. And then the third course is the Monterey Peninsula Country Club, the shore course. That is a par 71. Distance is 6,957 yards. All right, so they're all about 7,000 yards. Uh, Pebble Beach and Spyglass are par 72s, and Monterey Peninsula is par 71. All of the professional golfers and their amateurs partner, amateur partners will play a round at all three of the courses before a 54-hole cut is made. And then the final round is played, uh, of course, at the Pebble Beach Golf Links for the top 60 professionals and ties, all right? So same format as the the uh, American Express. Uh, the field for this thing is awesome, but not just simply because of the PGA players. And, and truthfully, there's really not a lot of horsepower uh, on the PGA that will be out there. Only five of the top 30 golfers in the official world golf rankings are going to be out there. Some names that you'll recognize, the bigger names, Matthew Fitzpatrick, Victor Hovland, Jordan Spieth, Seamus Power, and last year's winner, Tom Hoagie. All right, all of those guys are inside the top 30 of the official world golf rankings. Now, Jordan Spieth, probably the most notable out of that, and he has played at this event 10 times, and he has six top 10 finishes here at Pebble, including the last couple. All right, he's really dominated uh, always seems to be in contention on Sunday, regardless of, of what his first couple rounds look like. Uh, but some other notable professional golfers that are going to be out there, 
Kevin Kisner, Webb Simpson, and Justin Rose, all right? So there's going to be some recognizable professionals. But uh, the main reason what makes this field so special is that there's going to be a lot of celebrities out there playing golf. 156 of them, to be exact, are going to tee it up this week. Some notable celebrities include Aaron Rodgers, quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, Josh Allen, quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, uh, Jason Bateman, actor, uh, Eric Church, Darius Rucker, a couple of country singers, and then, of course, the infamous, the one and only Bill Murray. Uh, always entertaining to watch Bill Murray tee it up. Um, you know, this it's, it's on the West Coast, right? It's in California. Pebble is particularly is known for very extreme uh, weather in certain cases. It could be really windy. We could have some rain, uh, overcast skies, almost similar to what we saw at Torrey Pines, except uh, some of the holes at Pebble um, are almost... Uh, a whole, you know, they play almost a, 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 a par higher than what they are just due to the wind and the weather conditions. So it's going to be very entertaining. Of course, celebrities playing golf uh, with the pros always makes for fun and entertaining golf. So I know I'll be tuned into that. In fact, Josh Allen is opting to play in the Pebble Beach Pro-Am instead of the Pro Bowl, uh, which uh, we've already discussed. So uh, you know, his replacement has been named in that, but that's, it's funny, you know, he'd, he'd rather be out there playing golf than, than playing in a skills showcase at the Pro Bowl. So, um, yeah, it's going to be fun. I, I'll definitely be tuned into that. And, um, you know, we, it, it's just fun and entertaining for the first three rounds with the celebrities out there. And then Sunday is when it gets serious, of course, with the, with the pros, uh, battling it out for, uh, the crown of the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, all right? So, um, you know, I, I'll be tuned into that, uh, you know, a little bit on probably Saturday uh, and then a little bit maybe on Sunday afternoon, uh, probably tune into the Pro Bowl as well. So, uh, you know, it's going to be fun and exciting, and we'll check back in next week and see how Pebble Beach went down. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island. That's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports uh, got quite a bit to bring you from all of the major pro sports. We'll start off in the National Football League. We entered the playoffs with, I think, either five or six head coaching vacancies. But in this past week, uh, three of them have been filled. The biggest splash came via the Denver Broncos. All right. Uh, the Denver Broncos traded their first round pick this year, which is the 29th overall pick and their second-round pick next year in 2024 to the New Orleans Saints in exchange for head coach Sean Payton and the Saints' third-round pick in 2024 next year. All right, this is just massive, okay? Obviously, Sean Payton was the crown jewel of the coaching market, a Super Bowl-winning head coach with the New Orleans Saints. He stepped away from coaching, uh, last year to reset his mind and um, so Dennis, that's why Dennis Allen took over coaching the Saints but Sean Payton was under contract with the Saints through the 2024 season so any team that wanted to hire him had to do so uh, via trade they had to acquire him via trade which is exactly what Denver did they were the first to interview him made it abundantly clear that they wanted Sean Payton and now 
I think it's a great hire. I mean, obviously, Sean Payton is a great coach. There was rumor that he was going to turn down a head coaching uh, offer and stay in the Fox broadcast booth as a as a uh, an analyst, but he ended up, you know, obviously the the Broncos felt comfortable enough to make that trade, so they did just that. And uh, Sean Payton is going to be the new head coach of the Denver Broncos, but it comes at a hefty price. So of course, Denver traded their first-round pick, one of their first-round picks this year, uh, which was number five overall, ended up being to the Seattle Seahawks in the offseason for that Russell Wilson trade, all right? Broncos only won five games this year, all right? So uh, they were an absolutely horrible team, uh, coaching probably a big part of that, but execution was the other half. So, uh, you know, they they lose both of their first-round picks this year, so they do not have a first-round pick this year fresh off of a five-win season, but they get some new blood in there at the head coaching position. Uh, they also lost their second-round pick next year, so it's quite a bit uh, to give up for a, a head coach. You know, I don't really hear of head coaching trades very often, but that is what we just saw. Next hire was the Houston Texans. They hired San Francisco 49ers defensive coordinator D'Amico Ryans as their new head coach, and they signed him to a massive six-year deal. All right, that's that's quite a bit for a, a head coach, especially a first-year head, first-time head coach. All right, uh, to give him six years, considering the Texans have fired both of their previous two coaches, Lovey Smith this year and David Culley the year before each in their first season, you know, after their first season with the team, they fired them after giving both of them multi-year deals. So um, they want some stability, though, in Houston. Now, D'Amico Ryan spent the last couple years as the, the D.C. for the 49ers, helping to build the NFL's best defense, which we saw on display all season and really in the playoffs, too. All right. Now, D'Amico Ryan's has never been a head coach, but uh, he did play in the NFL for 10 seasons. He was actually drafted by the Houston Texans in the second round. So he played quite a bit with them. He's the Houston Texans franchise all-time leader in tackles with 479. All right. And then he went on to Philly before he uh, ended up retiring and getting into coaching. But in his playing tenure, he was a second-team All-Pro and a Pro Bowler. All right. So certainly he knows his stuff on the defensive side. It'll be interesting to see what he does with that Houston Texans team that needs a massive overhaul. They have the second overall pick. Got to figure it's going to be a quarterback, either Bryce Young or C.J. Stroud. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see. But uh, D'Amico Ryans has 11 draft picks in this upcoming draft this year to work with. So he certainly can get going on a rebuild there. The final head coaching hire that was this week was the Carolina Panthers. They have hired Frank Reich as their new head coach. All right, Reich becomes the sixth coach in Panthers franchise history. He actually played quarterback for the Panthers back in 1995. Okay, uh, Frank Reich was most recently the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts for the past four and a half seasons. In that time, he went 40 and 33 and one, uh, including one and two in the postseason. Now those numbers don't jump out at you, uh, but he was very successful. All right, he was fired after uh, the Colts' Week Nine loss this year at which time they were 3-5-1, and one, vastly underperforming. Okay, now Jonathan Taylor was hurt for some of that, but um, his record uh, was, you know, Frank Reich's a good coach, good offensive coach, uh, coached a couple of playoff teams there in Indy during that time with a carousel of quarterback. He never had really anything um, 
<clears throat> permanent at the quarterback position. And so uh, he, I mean, he did when Andrew Luck was there when he first got there, but uh, that was about it. So uh, he goes to Carolina, who is in desperate need of obviously some offensive rejuvenation there. And, um, you know, they got some skilled players for sure, but uh, they, they need Frank Reich in there to, uh, to get them going. Now, I haven't mentioned all the offensive and defensive coordinators that have been fired, but I do want to mention this because it pertains to the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, offensive coordinator Kellen Moore and the Cowboys mutually agreed to part ways after four seasons. All right, and immediately uh, upon that announcement, within 24 hours, uh, Kellen Moore was named the offensive coordinator of the Los Angeles Chargers. All right, so that's very interesting. Uh, you know, I don't think the Cowboys' downfall this year was entirely on Kellen Moore's shoulders. I mean, three of the four years he was the offensive coordinator, they had a, a top three offense in the league. So, uh, numbers wise, he got it done. He just, when it mattered most, last year in the playoffs against San Francisco, and then again this year in the playoffs against San Francisco, uh, the offense really just shit the bed. So, uh, Kellen Moore certainly does have some culpability in the Cowboys' lack of success in the playoffs the last couple of years, but <clears throat> you can't deny the fact that, uh, you know, the Cowboys had 12 wins in back-to-back -back years and their offensive production statistically was great. So, uh, but Kellen Moore inherits uh, a Chargers offense that has Justin Herbert, Austin Eckler, uh, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Joshua Palmer. Uh, it's ready-made for instant success there for Kellen Moore. And so I think he'll probably put up more gaudy numbers, but, you know, the Chargers have not been great. This was the first time they made the playoffs in the last five years. And, of course, they blew a, a 27-point lead. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if he'll have playoff success in Los Angeles immediately, but certainly I think the numbers uh, will be gaudy for that. Uh, some more NFL news. ESPN NFL reporter Adam Schefter has reported that, according to his sources within the Green Bay Packers organization, it is being reported that the Green Bay Packers, quote, prefer to move on from Aaron Rodgers. All right. Now, uh, I would assume that <clears throat> that means that they don't want Aaron Rodgers back as their quarterback. I'm not sure why you wouldn't. Uh, Hall of Famer, you know, Super Bowl winner, spent his entire career there. Um, reports have since come out that uh, indicated Aaron Rodgers' own admission. He says that there's conversations happening uh, with the Packers brass that he is not a part of. So uh, it's looking like Rodgers, it's a very realistic possibility that Aaron Rodgers might be um, either retiring or getting traded. He still has two years and about $100 million left on that contract. So that's going to be quite a bit for a team to take on via trade. Uh, but, you know, there's been some teams linked to Aaron Rodgers, one of which is the New York Jets. They just hired Nathaniel Hackett as their new offensive coordinator. Of course, Hackett got fired midway through his first year as a head coach in Denver after that travesty. But Hackett was very successful as the offensive coordinator for the Packers the last several years before that, in which he had Aaron Rodgers. So I'm not saying he's going to go to the Jets, but uh, I've seen reports that has linked Rodgers to the Jets. So uh, keep an eye on that situation. Man, it'd be weird to see Aaron Rodgers in any uniform but uh, Green Bay, similarly to what we saw with Tom Brady when he moved down to Tampa Bay. Uh, 
Some more NFL news. The NFL did announce that the 2023 salary cap will be at $224.8 million next season per team. All right, so that's actually an increase of $16.6 million from this past year. So that's good for a lot of these teams that are tight and cap-spaced. Cowboys, of course, being one of them, one of the more cap-strapped teams in the uh, NFL. And so uh, $16.5 million extra is quite a bit of money to play with that 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 by itself can go out and get you a pretty pretty uh, big name free agent there but uh the final piece of nfl news and i kind of just alluded to this in the golf segment josh allen he um is not going to be playing in the pro bowl because he's going to be playing at the pebble beach golf links there in the at&t pebble beach pro-am so to fill his spot in the pro bowl the nfl selected ravens quarterback tyler huntley okay now Tyler Huntley started four games this year for the Ravens. Okay, so I don't I don't know really what um, you know the the purpose behind that. Maybe he's a a uh, good source of entertainment or something. You know, and we talked about how it's a lot of skills challenge, not really a game. But uh, it's just weird to see uh, somebody that started four games getting named to the Pro Bowl when there are certainly other viable options especially in that competitive AFC, but uh, I digress. Uh, Over in the National Hockey League, all-star game note here uh, for the Atlantic Division all-star team, Florida Panthers forward Alexander Barkov is going to replace Toronto Maple Leafs forward Austin Matthews uh, because Austin Matthews this past week suffered a knee sprain that's going to keep him out for at least three weeks, all right? So that's that's a big blow to the Maple Leafs. And, um, you know, certainly have to regroup after the All-Star break. But Barkoff will replace Austin Matthews on that Atlantic Division roster. We did have one major trade go down in the NHL as we approach the NHL's trade deadline. That is uh, in a couple of weeks. The New York Islanders went out and acquired uh, center Bo Horvat from the Vancouver Canucks in exchange for forward Anthony Beauvillier, uh, Atu Rati, and a top 12 protected first-round pick in this summer's NHL draft, okay? Now, this is interesting for many reasons. One, uh, Bo Horvat was the captain of the Vancouver Canucks and has been for the last couple seasons. So it's not often that you see a captain get traded, uh, especially in midseason, all right? But his departure has been rumored uh, for a while, all right, because Vancouver is in a heavy rebuild right now. Uh, they just fired Bruce Boudreaux, their coach, and named Rick Tockett the new coach. And so there's, uh, they got a young roster, a lot, a lot of moving parts there in Vancouver, and uh, they're one of the bottom feeders in the Western Conference. So um, Bo Horvat was certainly rumored to be traded uh, at or near the deadline, and he has. Uh, I'm a little disappointed though because the Dallas Stars were rumored to be, uh, you know, interested in Bo Horvat, and um, I think that would have been a great addition to the Stars roster as it currently sits, especially with the great young pieces in the in the minors that uh, the Stars have that they could trade uh, to go all in this year, and that just obviously didn't happen because Bo Horvat is now a New York Islander. Over in the NBA, the Indiana Pacers and forward Miles Turner, they've agreed on a two-year, $60 million extension, including a $17.1 million contract renegotiation for this year's salary. Okay, and Miles Turner was another one of those names that uh, has been rumored to be on the move near the, the trade deadline, and, and of course, that obviously just didn't happen either. 
as he signs for uh, 30 mil a year for the next couple of years. So big money there for Miles Turner. He's a local product here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, but some all-star game announcements from the National Basketball Association this week. Uh, NBA announced the all-star game captains. Western Conference will be LeBron James, and uh, Eastern Conference is Giannis Antetokounmpo. Now, with that, they also announced the all-star starters for each conference. In the Western Conference, it's LeBron James, Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, Zion Williamson, and Nikola Jokic. And in the Eastern Conference, it's Giannis Antetokounmpo, Kevin Durant, Jason Tatum, Kyrie Irving, and Donovan Mitchell. All right. Uh, That's a star-studded starting lineup right there. I mean, it is the All-Star game, obviously, but, I mean, when you talk about uh, the top 10 players in the league that you can think of, I mean, there's, you know, eight of them are right there in that starting 10 for the All-Star game. Uh, So that's that's pretty good stuff there. This is actually LeBron James' 19th career All-Star game selection, which ties Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for the most All-Star game selections of all time in NBA history. So the other half of the All-Star Game announcement for the NBA is that the uh, NBA announced that the All-Star Game roster draft is going to be a little different this year. Okay, This will be the sixth year that the NBA has used the format where each captain drafts their own team, right, from the, from the pool of All-Star players. They take turns. They flip a coin for first pick. They alternate picks until their roster is filled out. Typically that happens – uh, a few days before, all right, the, the previous five years that they've done this, uh, that uh, All-Star draft has happened uh, several days prior to the All-Star game. Well, this year, the difference is that the captains are going to make their picks in a live televised pregame segment shortly before the All-Star game begins, okay? Now, I like this. I think the NBA wanted to change it up. Uh, to make it a tad bit more interesting and maybe get some more viewers. You know, the the way that they've done it, the All-Star Draft has been, you know, say Tuesday or Wednesday, the week of the All-Star game. Uh, But this year it's going to be pregame, live, probably an hour before the All-Star game tips off. And, you know, the NBA All-Star game is right up there with the NFL's Pro Bowl in terms of just being the biggest waste of time for an All-Star game. So I believe that this is the NBA's last-ditch effort to – try and generate more of an audience uh, before they are forced to do somewhat of a weekend-long skills competition, kind of like the NFL did. Um, they're going to have to tweak it in some manner. I think this this live draft, not knowing who the rosters are going to be um, you know, prior to really the game, it's going to be pretty much at game time when we know who's on what team, You know, who's on Team LeBron and who's on Team Giannis. All right, so... Uh, but the all-star game for the NBA is Sunday, February 19th, and that's in Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay, We'll move over to Major League Baseball. No trades to report. Uh, we do have some free agent re-signings. All right? we keep in mind that we are uh, just a few weeks away from the start of the World Baseball Classic, which is going to be very fun and entertaining. We are also just a a couple weeks away, really, from uh, pitchers and catchers reporting to spring training. So baseball season is is zooming up on us here, which I'm happy about. I love baseball season. I love that time of the year and uh, really pumped for the World Baseball Classic. But a couple of free agent re-signings, they're all re-signings, all right? Start off with the New York Mets. 
Uh, surprise, surprise with them. They uh, printed off more Monopoly money. Uh, they re-signed infielder Jeff McNeil, four years, $50 million, potential fifth-year option worth up to 6375 Uh He was the National League batting average champion uh, either this past year or the year before, and um, I think it was this past year. Uh, but either way, uh, I don't know how they have any money left to give because of all the money they've handed out this year. But um, nonetheless, McNeil stays in New York. Tampa Bay Rays, they re-signed third baseman Yandy Diaz, three years, $24 million. And then the Kansas City Royals, they re-signed starting pitcher Zach Grinke to a one-year contract. Uh, Grinke started his career with the Royals, moved on to Arizona, then to Houston, and then back to Kansas City this past year, and that is where he's going to stay. You have to assume that Grinke's probably close to being done and retiring, and that's why they just gave him a one-year deal. Other MLB news, the Houston Astros, they have named Dana Brown as their new general manager. Uh, Dana Brown played college baseball at Seton Hall, and he was actually teammates with uh, Astros legend Craig Biggio uh, there at Seton Hall. Um, Brown has served as the director of scouting for the Montreal Expos slash Washington Nationals from 2002 to 2009, and he was also the special assistant to the general manager for the Toronto Blue Jays from 2010 to 2018. And then the last three years from 2019 until this past year, Dana Brown was the vice president of scouting for the Atlanta Braves, who have put together just an amazing lineup of young really exceptional players that they have signed to eight and ten year contracts. I mean literally every every important player of the Atlanta Braves, you know, Austin Riley, Ozzy Albies, uh, you know, everybody that's you know, Ronald Acuna, they've gotten all those guys signed for the next eight to ten years on massive contracts that'll be spread out. And uh, the way that they the Braves have done it ha- has just been simply amazing. And the Braves are not going anywhere. They are going to be around uh, certainly for the next uh, relevant for the next you know four to six years minimum you know uh, unless they start trading some of those guys off but a big reason for that is Dana Brown all right serving as the VP of scouting he's done a terrific job in Atlanta in the last few years uh, won a World Series with that team and so he's hoping that he can continue that success and uh, scouting and he's you know he's certainly uh, qualified to be the general manager and uh, inherits an Astros team that's won two world series in the last what four or five years and seemingly is playing in the world series every year so he's hoping to keep that going and now i i did um come across this graphic that showed the top 10 most valuable MLB franchises and this list is via Forbes okay at number 10, the Atlanta Braves at $2.1 billion. Number 9, Los Angeles Angels at $2.2 billion. Number 8, Philadelphia Phillies at $2.3 billion. Number 7, the St. Louis Cardinals at $2.45 billion. Number 6, the New York Mets, $2.65 billion. Number 5, San Francisco Giants, $3.5 billion. Number 4, the Chicago Cubs, $3.8 billion. Number three, Boston Red Sox, $3.9 billion. Number two, Los Angeles Dodgers, $4.1 billion. And the most valuable MLB franchise at number one, the New York Yankees, at $6 billion. Now, there's not really any surprises on this list. I think the only surprise you could say would be the Los Angeles Angels 
at number nine. I mean, they do have two of the best players in the entire league in Shohei Otani and Mike Trout. So, uh, and they're in Los Angeles. Well, they're in Anaheim, you know, so uh, a rich part of town. And so I, um, I, you know, I would say if, if, if I had to write down a list of, of the, the top 10 teams that I thought were the most valuable, I, I probably would have gotten most of those teams, all right? I, I don't think I'd have put the Angels on there per se. Now, what even prompted me to find this graphic was um, Angels owner Art Moreno had talked about selling the Angels and went through, filed all the paperwork to get the, the transaction started and ended up uh, this past week uh, pulling that paperwork out. So he is no longer looking to sell the Angels. But that's really what prompted me to read that article. And then I, I came across that that graphic that had the ten, top 10 most valuable franchise. He was literally trying to sell the ninth most valuable uh, baseball team. So um, I just thought that was interesting. But final piece of MLB news is uh, deals with the 2023 Hall of Fame voting that took place this past week. All right. Uh, the only selection to make it into the MLB Hall of Fame for the class of 2023 was longtime third baseman Scott Rowland. All right. Now, in Major League Baseball Hall of Fame voting, uh, you need at least 75% of the vote to secure your induction into the Hall of Fame. Well, Scott Rowland was the only one on the ballot this year that amassed that 75%, and he only had 76.3%, so he barely cleared that threshold. Uh, this was Roland's sixth year on the ballot, so I finally got over that hump. Uh, there was some some pretty, you know, recognizable names on there. You know, Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez both had very low percentages, I think in the 30s. So it doesn't look like they're going to be getting in anytime soon. I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, the PED stuff or whatever. But uh, odd that Roland was the only name to get selected. Now, Scott Roland did play 17 seasons in Major League Baseball. His career batting average was 281. He had 2,077 hits, 316 home runs, 1,287 RBIs, and he scored 1,211 runs. Okay, He was the 1997 National League Rookie of the Year. He made it to seven All-Star games and was a gold glover at third base eight times. All right, so certainly has the resume. He also won the World Series with the St. Louis Cardinals. All right, so... Uh, he did play for the Toronto Blue Jays at one point, if I remember, uh, but he is most remembered as a St. Louis Cardinal. So uh, congrats to Scott Rowland, certainly deserving, and um, you know, interesting to see if any of the names that were close uh, get to make the ballot next year. But that is going to wrap up the 108th episode of the Sports Island podcast. Definitely another good one. Lots of info uh, thrown at you um, this upcoming weekend. Uh, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of fun stuff going on. Of course, National Football League, we got the Pro Bowl skills showdown on Thursday night and Sunday afternoon. The NHL's All-Star Game is this weekend, starting with the skills competition on Friday night, All-Star Game over the weekend. And then, uh, you know, of course, NBA is still going on, regular season. And then uh, PGA Tour, we got the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am with a lot of celebrities out there. So there is plenty to watch and uh, exciting weekend in sports. Just real fun all the way around, all right? And so we'll get you caught up on all that on next week's episode as well as preview Super Bowl 57, which uh, is in a couple of weeks. So we will, uh, we will be sure to get you uh, 
in-depth preview on that. Uh, But until then, stay safe and be well.